to share half a dozen suppers with the king. Called upon to entertain during those long, awkward meals, Mushroom tells us that King Aegon said little as they ate, but seemed more comfortable with Lady Turnips than he had ever been with Queen Jehera, which is to say, not comfortable at all. But he did not seem to find her presence distasteful. Three days before the ball, he gave her one of the little queen's dolls. Here, he said as he thrust it at her, you can have this. Not quite the words that innocent young maidens dream of hearing, perhaps, but Muriel took the gift as a token of affection, and her father was most pleased. Lady Muriel brought the doll with her when she made her own appearance at the ball, cradling it in her arms as if it were a babe. She was not the first to be presented. That honour went to the daughter of the Prince of Pentos, nor the last, Henrietta Woodhull, daughter of a landed knight from the Paps. Her father had seen to it that she came before the king late in the first hour, far enough back so he could not be accused of giving her pride of place, but far enough forward so King Aegon would still be reasonably fresh. When his grace greeted Lady Muriel by name and said not only, It was good of you to come, my lady, but also, I am pleased you like the doll, her father surely took heart, believing that all his careful scheming had borne fruit. Yet it would all be undone in a trice by the king's half-sisters, the very twins whose succession Unwin Peak had been so determined to prevent. Fewer than a dozen maids remained, and the press had thinned considerably when a sudden trumpet blast heralded the arrival of Baylor Valerian and Rainer Corbray. The doors to the throne room were thrown open, and the daughters of Prince Damon entered upon a blast of winter air. Lady Baylor was great with child. Lady Rayner, wan and thin from her miscarriage, yet seldom had they seemed more as one. Both were dressed in gowns of soft black velvet, with rubies at their throats, and the three-headed dragon of House Targaryen on their cloaks. Mounted on a pair of coal-black chargers, the twins rode the length of the hall side by side. When Sir Marston Waters of the Kingsguard blocked their path and demanded they dismount, Lady Baylor slashed him across the cheek with her riding crop. His grace, my brother, can command me. You cannot. At the foot of the iron throne they reined up. Lord Unwin rushed forward, demanding to know the meaning of this. The twins paid him no more heed than they would a serving man. Brother, Lady Rayner said to Aegon, if it please you, we have brought your new queen. Her lord husband, Sir Corwin Corbray, brought the girl forward. A gasp went through the hall. Lady Denera of House Valerian, boomed out the herald somewhat hoarsely, the daughter of the late and lamented Daron of that house, and his lady wife, Hazel of House Hart, also departed, a ward of Lady Baylor of House Targaryen, and Alan the Oakenfist of House Valerian, Lord Admiral Master of Driftmark and Lord of the Tides. Denera Valerian was an orphan. Her mother had been carried off by the winter fever. Her father had died in the stepstones when his true heart went down. His own father had been that Sir Vaymond beheaded by Queen Rhaenyra, but Daron had been reconciled with Lord Allen and had died fighting for him. As she stood before the king that maiden's day, clad in pale white silk, mirish lace and pearls, her long hair shining in the torchlight and her cheeks flush with excitement, Daenera was but six years old. Yet so beautiful she took the breath away. The blood of old Valyria was strong in her, as is oft seen in the sons and daughters of the seahorse. Her hair was silver laced with gold, her eyes as blue as a summer sea, 
her skin as smooth and pale as winter snow. She sparkled, Mushroom says, and when she smiled, the singers in the galley rejoiced, for they knew that here at last was a maid worthy of a song. Daenerys' smile transformed her face, men agreed. It was sweet and bold and mischievous all at once. Those who saw it could not fail to think, here is a bright, sweet, happy little girl, the perfect antidote to the young king's gloom. When Aegon Third returned her smile and said, Thank you for coming, my lady. You look very pretty. Even Lord Unwin Peak surely must have known that the game was lost. The last few maidens were brought forward hurriedly to do their turns, but the king's desire to put an end to the parade was so palpable that poor Henrietta Woodhull was sobbing as she curtsied. As she was led away, King Aegon summoned his young cupbearer, Gaiman Palehair. To him was given the honour of making the announcement. His grace will marry Lady Denera of House Valerian, Gaiman shouted happily. Caught in a snare of his own making, Lord Unwin Peak had no choice but to accept the king's decision with as much grace as he could muster. In a council meeting the next day, however, he gave vent to his wrath. By choosing for his bride a girl of six, this sulky boy had thwarted the entire purpose of the marriage. It would be years before the girl was old enough to bed, and even longer until she could hope to produce a true-born heir. Until such time, the succession would remain clouded. The foremost duty of a regency was to guard the king against the follies of youth, he declared. Follies such as this! For the good of the realm, the king's choice must be set aside, so that his grace might marry a suitable maid of childbearing age. Such as your daughter? asked Lord Rowan. I think not. Nor were his fellow regents more sympathetic. For once, the council remained adamant, defying the hand's wishes. The marriage would proceed. The betrothal was announced the next day, as scores of disappointed maidens streamed out the city gates for home. King Aegon III Targaryen wed Lady Daenerys on the last day of the 133rd year since Aegon's conquest. The crowds that lined the streets to cheer the royal couple were significantly smaller than those who had come out for Aegon and Jehera, for the winter fever had carried off almost a fifth of the population of King's Landing. But those who did brave the day's bitter winds and snow flurries were delighted with their new queen, charmed by her happy waves, flushed cheeks and shy, sweet smiles. Ladies Baylor and Raynor, riding just behind the royal litter, were greeted with exuberant cheers as well. Only a few took note of the king's hand farther back, with his face as grim as death. Under the Regents The Voyage of Alan Oakenfist Let us leave King's Landing for a time, and turn back the calendar to speak of Lady Baylor's lord husband Alan Oakenfist on his epic voyage to the Sunset Sea. The trials and triumphs of the Valerian fleet as it made its way around the arse of Westeros, as Lord Alan was wont to call it, could fill a mighty tome all by themselves. For those seeking the details of the voyage, Maester Bendemure's Six Times to Sea being an account of the great voyages of Alan Oakenfist, remains the most complete and authoritative source. Though the vulgar accounts of Lord Allen's life, called Hard as Oak and Bastard Born, are colourful and engrossing in their ways, albeit unreliable. 
The former was written by Sir Russell Stillman, who squired for his lordship as a youth, and was later knighted by him before losing a leg during Oakenfist's fifth voyage, the latter by a woman known only as Rue, who may or may not have been a scepter, and may or may not have become one of his lordship's paramours. We shall not echo their work here save in the broadest strokes. Oakenfist displayed considerably more caution on his return to the Stepstones than he had on his previous visit. Wary of the ever-shifting alliances and studied treacheries of the free cities, he sent scouts ahead in the guise of fishing boats and merchantmen to discover what awaited him. They reported that the fighting on the islands had largely died away, with a resurgent Recaliorindun holding Bloodstone and all the isles to the south, whilst Pentoshi sellswords in the hire of the Archon of Tyrosh controlled those rocks to the north and east. Many of the channels between the islands were closed by booms, or blocked by the hulks of ships sunk during Lord Allen's attack. Such waterways as remained open were controlled by Rindoon and his robes. Lord Allen was thus confronted with a simple choice. He must needs fight his way past Queen Recalio, as the Archon had named him, or treat with him. Little has been written in the common tongue about this strange and extraordinary adventurer, Recalio Rindoon, but in the free cities his life has been the subject of two scholarly studies and uncounted numbers of songs, poems, and vulgar romances. In his native city, Tyroche, his name remains anathema to men and women of good blood to this very day, whilst being revered by thieves, pirates, whores, drunkards, and their ilk. Surprisingly little is known of his youth, and much of what we believe we know is false or contradictory. He was six and a half feet tall, supposedly, with one shoulder higher than another, giving him a stooped posture and a rolling gait. He spoke a dozen dialects of Valyrian, suggesting that he was high-born, but he was infamously foul-mouthed, too, suggesting that he came from the gutters. In the fashion of many Tyroshi, he was wont to dye his hair and beard. Purple was his favourite colour, hinting at the possibility of a tie to bravos, and most accounts of him make mention of long, curling purple hair oft streaked with orange. He liked sweet scents and would bathe in lavender or rose water. That he was a man of enormous ambition and enormous appetites seems clear. He was a glutton and a drunkard when at leisure, a demon when in battle. He could wield a sword with either hand and sometimes fought with two at once. He honoured the gods, all gods, everywhere. When battle threatened, he would throw the bones to choose which god to placate with a sacrifice. Though Tyrosh was a slave city, he hated slavery, suggesting that perhaps he himself had come from bondage. When wealthy, he gained and lost several fortunes. He would buy any slave girl who caught his eye, kiss her, and set her free. He was open-handed with his men, claiming a share of plunder no greater than the least of them. In Tyrosh he was known to toss gold coins to beggars. If a man admired something of his, be it a pair of boots, an emerald ring, or a wife, Recalio would press it on him as a gift. He had a dozen wives, and never beat them, but would sometimes command them to beat him. He loved kittens and hated cats. He loved pregnant women, but loathed children. From time to time he would dress in women's clothes and play the whore, though his height and crooked back and purple beard made him more grotesque than female to the eye. Sometimes he would burst out laughing in the thick of battle. 
Sometimes he would sing bawdy songs instead. Recalio Rindun was mad, yet his men loved him, fought for him, died for him. And for a few short years, they made him a king. In 133 AC, in the Stepstones, Queen Recalio was at the height of his power. Alan Valerian could perhaps have brought him down, but it would have cost him half his strength, he feared, and he would have need of every man if he were to have any hope of defeating the Red Kraken. He therefore chose talk instead of battle. Detaching his Lady Bela from the fleet, he sailed her into bloodstone beneath a parley flag to try to arrange free passage for his ships through Rindoon's waters. Ultimately, he succeeded, though Recalio kept him for more than a fortnight in his sprawling wooden fortress on Bloodstone. Whether Lord Allen was a captive or a guest was never quite clear, even to his lordship himself, for his host was as changeable as the sea. One day he would hail Oakenfist as a friend and brother-in-arms, and urge him to join him in an attack on Tyroche. The next he would throw the bones to see if he should put his guest to death. He insisted that Lord Allen wrestle with him in a mud pit behind his fort, whilst hundreds of jeering pirates looked on. When he beheaded one of his own men accused of spying for the Tyroshi, Recalio presented Lord Allen with the head as a token of their fellowship. But the very next day, he accused his lordship of being in the Archon's hire himself. To prove his innocence, Lord Allen was forced to kill three Tyroshi prisoners. When he did, the Queen was so delighted with him that he sent two of his wives to Oakenfist's bedchamber that night. Give them sons, Recalio commanded. I want sons as brave and strong as you. Our sources are at odds as to whether or not Lord Allen did as he was bid. In the end, Rindoon allowed that the Valerian fleet might pass. For a price. He wanted three ships, an alliance writ on sheepskin and signed in blood, and a kiss. Oakenfist gave him the three least seaworthy ships in his fleet, an alliance writ on parchment and signed in maester's ink, and the promise of a kiss from Lady Baylor, should the Queen visit them on Driftmark. That proved sufficient. The fleet sailed through the stepstones. More trials awaited them, however. The next was Dawn. The Dornish men were understandably alarmed, with the sudden appearance of the large Valerian fleet in the waters off Sunspear. Lacking any strength at sea themselves, however, they chose to regard Lord Allen's coming as a visit rather than an attack. Aleandra Martel, Princess of Dawn, came out to meet with him, accompanied by a dozen of her current favourites and suitors. The new Nymeria had just celebrated her eighteenth name day, and was reportedly much taken with the young, handsome, dashing hero of the Stepstones, the bold admiral who had humbled the Bravosi. Lord Allen required fresh water and provisions for his ships, whilst Princess Aleandra required services of a more intimate nature. Bastard Bourne would have us believe that he provided them, hard as oak that he did not. We do know that the attentions the flirtatious Dornish princess lavished upon him much displeased her own lords and angered her younger siblings, Kyle and Corianne. Nonetheless, Lord Oakenfist got fresh casks of water, enough food to see them through to Old Town and the Arbor, and charts showing the deadly whirlpools that lurked along the southern coast of Dawn. Even so, it was in Dornish waters that Lord Valerian suffered his first losses. A sudden storm blew up as the fleet was making its way past the drylands west of Salt Shore, scattering the ships and sinking too. 
Farther west, near the mouth of the Brimstone River, a damaged galley put in to take aboard fresh water and make certain repairs, and was attacked under the cover of darkness by bandits, who slaughtered her crew and looted her supplies. Those losses were more than made good. When Lord Oakenfist reached Old Town, however, the great beacon atop the high tower guided Lady Baylor and the fleet up Whispering Sound to the harbour, where Lionel Hightower himself came forth to meet them and welcomed them to his city. The courtesy with which Lord Allen treated Lady Sam warmed Lord Lionel to him immediately, and the two youths struck up a fast friendship that did much to put all the old enmities between the blacks and greens to rest. Old Town would provide twenty warships for the fleet, Hightower promised, and his good friend Lord Redwine of the Arbour would send thirty. In a stroke, Lord Oakenfist's fleet had become considerably more formidable. The Valerian fleet lingered over long in Whispering Sound, waiting for Lord Redwine and his promised galleys. Alan Oakenfist enjoyed the hospitality of the Hightower, explored the ancient wines and ways of Old Town, and visited the Citadel, where he spent days poring over ancient charts and studying dusty Valyrian treatises about warship design and tactics for battle at sea. At the Starry Sept, he received the blessing of the High Septon, who traced a seven-pointed star upon his brow in holy oil, and sent him forth to bring down the warrior's wrath upon the Iron Men and their drowned god. Lord Valerian was still at Old Town when word of Queen Jehera's death reached the city, followed within a few short days by the announcement of the king's betrothal to Miriel Peak. By that time he had become close to Lady Sam as well as to Lord Lionel, though whether he had any part in the writing of her infamous letter remains a matter of conjecture. It is known, however, that he dispatched letters to his own lady wife on Driftmark whilst at the high tower. We do not know the contents. Oakenfist was still a young man in 133 AC, and young men are not known for their patience. Finally, he decided that he would wait no longer for Lord Redwine and gave the order to sail. Old Town cheered as the Valerian ships raised their sails and lowered their oars, sliding down the whispering sound one by one. Twenty war galleys of House Hightower followed, commanded by Sir Leo Costain, a grizzled seafarer known as the Sea Lion. Off the singing cliffs of Black Crown, where twisted towers and wind-carved stones whistled above the waves, the fleet turned north into the Sunset Sea, creeping up the western coast past Vandalen. As they passed the mouth of the Manda, the men of the Shield Islands sent forth their own galleys to join them, three ships each from Grey Shield and South Shield, four from Green Shield, six from Oaken Shield. Before they could move much farther north, however, another storm came down on them. One ship went down, and three more were so badly damaged that they could not proceed. Lord Valerian regrouped the fleet off Craighall, where the Lady of the Castle rode out to meet him. It was from her that his lordship first heard of the great ball to be held on Maiden's Day. Word had reached Fair Isle as well, and we are told that Lord Dalton Greyjoy even toyed with the idea of sending one of his sisters to vie for the Queen's crown. An iron maid upon the iron throne, he said. What could be more fitting? The Red Kraken had more immediate concerns, however. Long forewarned of the coming of Alan Oakenfist, he had gathered his power to receive him. Hundreds of longships had assembled in the waters south of Fair Isle, and more are Feastfires, Case, and Lannisport. After he sent that boy 
Down to the halls of the drowned god at the bottom of the sea, the Red Kraken proclaimed he would take his own fleet back the way that Oakenfist had come, raise his banner over the shields, sack Old Town and Sunspear, and claim Driftmark for his own. Though Greyjoy was not quite three years older than his foe, he never called him anything but that boy. He might even take Lady Baylor for a salt wife, the Lord of the Iron Islands told his captains, laughing. "'Tis true, I have two and twenty salt wives, but not a one with silver hair." So much of history tells of the deeds of kings and queens, high lords, noble knights, holy septons, and wise maesters, that it is easy to forget the common folk who shared these times with the great and the mighty. Yet from time to time some ordinary man or woman, blessed with neither birth nor wealth nor wit nor wisdom nor skill at arms, will somehow rise up and by some simple act or whispered word change the destiny of kingdoms. So it was on Fair Isle in that fateful year of 133 A.C. Lord Dalton Greyjoy did indeed possess two and twenty salt wives. Four were back on Pike. Two of those had borne him children. The others were women of the West, taken during his conquests, amongst them two of the late Lord Farman's daughters, the widow of the Knight of Case, even a Lannister, a Lannister of Lannisport, not a Lannister of Casterly Rock. The rest were girls of humbler birth, the daughters of simple fisherfolk, traders, or men-at-arms who had somehow caught his eye, oft as not after he had slain their fathers, brothers, husbands, or other male protectors. One bore the name of Tess. Her name is all we truly know of her. Was she thirteen or thirty, pretty or plain? a widow or a virgin? Where did Lord Greyjoy find her, and how long had she been amongst his salt wives? Did she despise him for a reaver and a raper, or love him so fiercely she went mad with jealousy? We do not know. Accounts differ so markedly that Tess must remain forever a mystery in the annals of history. All that is known for a certainty is that on a rainy, windswept night at Faircastle, as the longships gathered below, Lord Dalton had his pleasure of her, and afterward, as he slept, Tess slipped his dagger from its sheath and opened his throat from ear to ear, then threw herself, naked and bloody, into the hungry sea below. And so perished the Red Kraken of Pike, on the eve of his greatest battle, slain not by the sword of a foe, but by his own dagger in the hand of one of his own wives. Nor did his conquests long survive him. As word of his death spread, the fleet he had assembled to meet Alan Oakenfist began to dissolve, as captain after captain slipped away for home. Dalton Greyjoy had never taken a rock wife, so his only heirs were two young sons born of the salt wives he had left on Pike, three sisters and several cousins, each more grasping and ambitious than the last. By law, the seastone chair passed to the eldest of his salt sons, but the boy Toron was not yet six and his mother, as a salt wife, could not hope to act as regent for him as a rock wife might have. A struggle for power was inevitable, a truth the ironborn captains saw well as they raced back toward their isles. Meanwhile, the small folk of Fair Isle and such knights as still remained on the island rose up in red rebellion. The iron men who had lingered when their kinsmen fled were dragged from their beds and hacked to death, or set upon on the docks, their ships swarmed over and set ablaze. In the space of three days, 
Hundreds of reavers suffered ends as cruel, bloody, and sudden as those they had inflicted on their prey, until only Faircastle remained in the ironborn hands. The garrison, composed in large part of the Red Kraken's close companions and brothers in battle, held out stubbornly under the sly Alistair Winch and the roaring giant Gunther Goodbrother, until the latter slew the former in a quarrel over Lord Farman's daughter Lisa, one of the salt widows. And so it came to pass that when Alan Valerian arrived at last to deliver the West from the Iron Men of the Isles, he found himself without a foe. Fair Isle was free, the longships had fled, the fighting was done. As the Lady Bela passed beneath the walls of Lannisport, the bells of the city pealed in welcome. Thousands rushed from the gates to line the shore, cheering. Lady Joanna herself emerged from Casterly Rock to present Oakenfist with a seahorse wrought in gold and other tokens of Lannister esteem. Days of celebration followed. Lord Allen was anxious to take on provisions and depart on his long voyage home, but the Westermen were loath to see him go. With their own fleet destroyed, they remained vulnerable, should the Ironmen return under the Red Kraken's successor, whoever he might be. Lady Joanna even went so far as to propose an attack upon the Iron Islands themselves. She would provide as many swords and spears as might be required. Lord Valerian need only deliver them to the Isles. We should put every man of them to the sword, her ladyship declared, and sell their wives and children to the slavers of the East. Let the seagulls and the crabs claim those worthless rocks. Oakenfist would have none of it. But to please his hosts, he did agree that the sea lion, Leo Costain, would remain at Lannisport with a third of the fleet until such time as the Lannisters, the Farmans, and the other lords of the West could rebuild sufficient warships of their own to defend against any return of the Iron Man. Then he raised his sails once more and took the remainder of his fleet back out to sea, returning from whence he'd come. Of their voyage home we need say little. Near the mouth of the Mander, the Red Wine fleet was finally sighted, hurrying north, but they turned about after breaking bread with Lord Valerian on the Lady Baylor. His lordship made a brief visit to the arbor as Lord Redwine's guest, and a longer one at Oldtown, where he renewed his friendships with Lord Lionel Hightower and Lady Sam, sat with the scribes and maesters of the Citadel so they might set down the details of his voyage, was feted by the masters of the Seven Guilds, and received yet another blessing from the High Septum. Again he sailed along the parched, dry coasts of dawn, this time beating eastward. Princess Aleandra was pleased at his return to Sunspear, and insisted on hearing every detail of his adventures, to the fury of her siblings and jealous suitors. It was from her that Lord Oakenfist learned that Dawn had joined the Daughters' War, making alliance with Tyrosh and Lys against Rakalio Rindun and it was at her court at Sunspear during the Maiden's Day feast, the very day that a thousand maidens were parading before Aegon III in King's Landing, that his lordship was approached by a certain Drazenko Regare, one of the envoys that Lys had sent to Aleandra's court, who begged a private word. Curious, Lord Allen agreed to listen, and the two men stepped out into the yard where Drazenko leaned so close that his lordship said, I feared he meant to kiss me. Instead, he whispered something in the Admiral's ear, a secret that changed the course of Westerosi history. The next day, Lord Valerian returned to Lady Baylor and gave the command to raise sail. For lease. 
His reasons and what befell him in the free city we shall reveal in due time. But for the nonce, let us turn our gaze back on King's Landing. Hope and good feeling reigned over the Red Keep as the new year dawned. Though younger than her predecessor, Queen Daenera was a happier child, and her sunny nature did much to lighten the king's gloom. For a while, at the least. Aegon III was seen about the court more often than had been his wont, and even left the castle on three occasions to show his bride such sights as the city offered, though he refused to take her to the dragon pit where Lady Rayner's young dragon mourning made her lair. His grace seemed to take a new interest in his studies, and Mushroom was oft summoned to entertain the king and queen at supper. The sound of the queen's laughter was like music to this fool, so sweet that even the king was known to smile. Even Gareth Long, the Red Keep's despised master-at-arms, made note of a change. We no longer have to beat the bastard boy as often as before, he told the hand. The boy has never lacked for strength nor speed. Now at last he is showing some modicum of skill. The young king's new interest in the world even extended to the rule of his kingdom. Aegon III began to attend the council, though he seldom spoke his presence heartened Grand Maester Munken and seemed to please Lord Moton and Lord Rowan. Sir Marston Waters of the King's Guard seemed discomforted by his grace's attendance, however, and Lord Peake took it for a rebuke. Whenever Aegon made so bold as to ask a question, Munken tells us, the Hand would bristle and accuse him of wasting the council's time, or inform him that such weighty matters were beyond the understanding of a child. Unsurprisingly, before very long, his grace began to absent himself from the meetings as before. Sour and suspicious by nature, and possessed of overweening pride, Unwin Peak was a most unhappy man by 134 AC. The Maiden's Day Ball had been a humiliation, and he took the king's rejection of his daughter, Miriel, in favour of Denera, as a personal affront. Never fond of Lady Baylor, he now had reason to mislike her sister Raynor as well. Both of them, he was convinced, were working against him, most like at the behest of Baylor's husband, the insolent and rebellious Oakenfist. The twins had deliberately and with malice aforethought wrecked his own plans to secure the succession, he told his own loyalists, and by seeing to it that the king took to wife a six-year-old, they had ensured that the child Baylor carried would be next in line to the Iron Throne. If the child is a boy, his grace will never live long enough to sire an heir of his own body, Peak said to Marston Waters once, in Mushroom's presence. Shortly thereafter, Bela Valerian was brought to childbed and delivered of a healthy baby girl. She named the child Lena, after her mother. Yet even this did not long mollify the king's hand. For less than a fortnight later, the leading elements of the Valerian fleet returned to King's Landing bearing a cryptic message. Oakenfist had sent them on ahead, whilst he set sail for lease to secure a treasure beyond price. These words inflamed Lord Peake's suspicions. What was this treasure? How did Lord Valerian mean to secure it? With a sword? Was he about to start a war with Lys, as he had with Bravos? The Hand had sent the rash young admiral around the whole of Westeros to rid the court of him, yet here he was about to descend on them once more, dripping with undeserved acclaim, and mayhaps vast wealth as well. Gold was ever a sore point for Unwin Peak, whose own house was land poor, 
rich in stone and soil and pride, yet chronically short of coin. The small folk saw Oakenfist as a hero, his lordship knew, the man who had humbled the proud sea lord of Bravos and the red kraken of Pike, whilst he himself was resented and reviled. Even within the Red Keep there were many who hoped that the regents might remove Lord Peake as king's hand and replace him with Alan Valerian. The excitement occasioned by Oakenfist's return was palpable, however, so all the hand could do was seethe. When Lady Baylor's sails were first seen across the waters of Blackwater Bay, with the rest of the Valerian fleet appearing from the morning mists behind her, every bell in King's Landing commenced to toll. Thousands crowded onto the city walls to cheer the hero, just as they had at Lannisport half a year before, whilst thousands more rushed out the river gate to line the shores. But when the king expressed the wish to go to the docks to thank my good brother for his service, the hand forbade it, insisting it would not be fitting for his grace to go to Lord Valerian, that the admiral must come to the Red Keep to abase himself before the Iron Throne. In this, as in the matter of Aegon's betrothal to Miriel Peak, Lord Unwin found himself overruled by the other regents. Over his strenuous objections, King Aegon and Queen Daenerys descended from the castle in their litter, accompanied by Lady Bela and her newborn daughter, her sister Lady Rayner with her lord husband Corwin Corbray, Grand Maester Munken, Septon Bernard, the regents Manfred Mouton and Thaddeus Rowan, the knights of the King's Guard, and many other notables eager to meet Lady Baylor at the docks. The morning was bright and cold, the chronicles tell us. There, before the eyes of tens of thousands, Lord Alan Oakenfist beheld his daughter Lena for the first time. After kissing his lady wife, he took the child from her and held her high for all the crowd to see as the cheers fell like thunder. Only then did he return the girl to her mother's arms and bend his knee before the king and queen. Queen Daenerys, blushing prettily and stammering just a little, hung about his neck a heavy golden chain studded with sapphires, but blue as the sea where my lord has won his victories. Then King Aegon III bade the admiral rise with the words, we are glad to have you safe home, my brother. Mushroom says that Oakenfist was laughing as he climbed back to his feet. Sire, he replied, you have honoured me with your sister's hand, and I am proud to be your brother by marriage. Yet I can never be your brother by blood. But there is one who is. Then, with a flamboyant gesture, Lord Allen summoned forth the treasure he had brought from Lise. Down from the Lady Baylor, emerged a pale young woman of surpassing beauty, arm in arm with a richly clad boy near the king's own age, his features hidden beneath the cowl of his embroidered cloak. Lord Unwin Peake could no longer contain himself. Who is this? he demanded, pushing forward. Who are you? The boy threw back his cowl. As the sunlight glittered on the silver-gold hair beneath, King Aegon III began to weep, throwing himself upon this boy in a fierce embrace. Oakenfist's treasure was Viserys Targaryen, the king's lost brother, the youngest son of Queen Rhaenyra and Prince Daemon, presumed dead since the Battle of the Gullet and missing for nigh unto five years. In 129 AC, it will be recalled, the Queen Rhaenyra had sent her two youngest sons to Pentos 
to keep them from harm's way, only to have the ship taking them across the narrow sea sail into the teeth of a war fleet from the Triarchy. Whilst Prince Aegon had escaped on his dragon, Stormcloud, Prince Viserys had been taken. The Battle of the Gullet soon followed, and when no word was heard of the young prince afterward, he was presumed dead. No one could even say for a certainty which ship he had been on. But though many thousands died in the Gullet, Viserys Targaryen was not one of them. The ship carrying the young princeling had survived the battle and limped back home to Lys, where Viserys found himself a captive of the Grand Admiral of the Triarchy, Shirako Loha. Defeat had left Shirako in disgrace, however, and the Lysini soon found himself besieged by enemies old and new, eager to bring him down. Desperate for coin and allies, he sold the boy to a certain magister of that city named Bambaro Bazan, in return for Viserys's weight in gold and a promise of support. The subsequent murder of the disgraced admiral brought the tensions and rivalries amongst the three daughters to the surface, and long-simmering resentments flared into violence with a series of murders that soon led to open war. Amidst the chaos that followed, Magister Bambaro thought it prudent to keep his prize hidden away for the nonce, lest the boy be wrested away by one of his fellow Lysini, or rivals from another city. Viserys was well treated during his captivity. Though forbidden to leave the grounds of Bambaro's manse, he had his own suite of rooms, shared meals with the magister and his family, had tutors to instruct him in languages, literature, mathematics, history, and music, even a master at arms to teach him swordsmanship, at which art he soon excelled. It is widely believed, though never proved, that Bambaro's intent was to wait out the Dance of the Dragons, and then either ransom Prince Viserys back to his mother, should Rhaenyra emerge triumphant, or sell his head to his uncle, should Aegon II prove the victor. As Lys suffered a series of shattering defeats in the Daughters' War, however, these plans went awry. Bambaro Bazan died in the disputed lands in 132 A.C., when the sellsword company he was leading against Tyrosh turned against him over a matter of back pay. Upon his death, it was discovered that he had been enormously in debt, whereupon his creditors seized his manse. His wife and children were sold into slavery, and his furnishings, clothing, books, and other valuables, including the captive princeling, passed into the hands of another nobleman, Lysandro Rogari. Lysandro, was the patriarch of a rich and powerful banking and trading dynasty whose bloodlines could be traced back to Valyria before the doom. Amongst many other holdings, the Regaris owned a famous pillow house, the Perfumed Garden. Viserys Targaryen was so striking that it is said Lysandro Regari contemplated putting him to work as a courtesan, until the boy identified himself. Once he knew he had a prince in hand, the magister quickly revised his plans. Instead of selling the prince's favours, he married him to his youngest daughter, the Lady Lara Rogari, who would become known in the histories of Westeros as Lara of Lys. The chance encounter between Alan Valerian and Drazenko Rogari at Sunspear had provided a perfect opportunity to effect the return of Prince Viserys to his brother. But it is not in the nature of any Lysini to make a gift of anything that might be sold so it was first necessary that Oakenfist come to lease and agree to terms with Lysandro Logare. 
The realm might have been better served had it been Lord Allen's mother at that table, rather than Lord Allen, Mushroom observes rightly. Oakenfist was no haggler. To secure the prince, his lordship agreed that the Iron Throne would pay a ransom of one hundred thousand golden dragons, agree not to take up arms against House Rogari or its interests for a hundred years, entrust the Rogari Bank of Lease with such funds as were presently held by the Iron Bank of Bravos, grant lordships to three of Lysandro's younger sons, and, above all, swear upon his honour that the marriage between Viserys Targaryen and Laro Rogari would not be set aside for any cause. To all of this, Lord Alan Valerian had agreed, and affixed his sign and seal. Prince Viserys had been seven when he was taken from the gay abandon. He was twelve on his return in 134 AC. His wife, the beautiful young woman who had walked arm in arm with him from the Lady Baylor, was nineteen, seven years his senior. Though two years younger than the king, Viserys was in certain ways more mature than his elder brother. Aegon III had never shown any carnal interest in either of his queens, understandably in the case of Queen Daenerys, who was yet a child. But Viserys had already consummated his own marriage, as he confided proudly to Grand Maester Monken during the feast held to welcome him home. The return of his brother from the dead worked a wondrous change in Aegon III, Munken tells us. His grace had never truly forgiven himself for leaving Viserys to his fate when he fled the gay abandon on dragonback before the Battle of the Gullet. Though only nine at the time, Aegon came from a long line of warriors and heroes, and had been raised on stories of their bold deeds and daring exploits, none of which included fleeing from a battle whilst abandoning your little brother to death. Down deep, the broken king felt himself unworthy to sit the Iron Throne. He had not been able to save his brother, his mother, or his little queen from grisly death. How could he presume to save a kingdom? Viserys's return did much to lessen the king's loneliness as well. As a boy, Aegon had worshipped his three elder half-brothers, but it was Viserys who shared his bedchamber, his lessons, and his games. Some part of the king had died with his brother in the gullet, wrote Munken. It is plain to see that Aegon's affection for Gaiman Palehair was born of his desire to replace the little brother he had lost. But only when Viserys was restored to him did Aegon seem once more alive and whole. Prince Viserys once again became King Aegon's constant companion, as he had been when they were boys together on Dragonstone, whilst Gaiman Palehair was cast aside and forgotten and even Queen Daenerys was neglected. The return of the lost prince resolved the question of succession as well. As the king's brother, Viserys was the undisputed heir apparent, ahead of any child born to Bela Valerian or Rhaena Corbray or the twins themselves. King Aegon's choice of a girl of six as his second wife no longer seemed so worrisome. Prince Viserys was a lively, likely young lad, possessed of great charm and boundless vitality. Though not as tall, as strong, or as handsome as his brother, he struck all who met him as more clever and more curious than the king. And his own wife was no child, but a beautiful young woman well into her childbearing years. Let Aegon have his child bride. Lara of Lys was like to give Viserys children sooner rather than later, thereby securing the dynasty. For all these reasons, king and court and city 
rejoiced at the prince's coming, and Lord Alan Valerian became more beloved than ever for delivering Viserys from his captivity in Lys. Their joy was not shared by the king's hand, however. Whilst Lord Unwin declared himself delighted by the return of the king's brother, he was furious at the price Oakenfist had agreed to pay for him. The young admiral had no authority to consent to such ruinous terms, Peake insisted. Only the regents and the hand were empowered to speak for the Iron Throne, not any fool with a fleet. Law and tradition were on his side, Grand Maester Munken admitted when the hand brought his grievances to the council, but the king and the small folk felt otherwise, and it would have been the height of folly to repudiate Lord Allen's pact. The other regents concurred. They voted new honours for Oakenfist, confirmed the legitimacy of Prince Viserys's marriage to Lady Lara, agreed to pay her father the ransom in ten annual payments, and moved a vastly greater sum of gold from Bravos to Lys. For Lord Unwin Peak, this seemed yet another humiliating rebuke, coming so close on the heels of the Maiden's Day cattle show and the king's repudiation of his daughter Miriel in favour of the child Denera. It was more than his pride could endure. Mayhaps his lordship thought he could bend his fellow regents to his will by threatening to resign as king's hand. Instead, the council accepted his resignation with alacrity and appointed the bluff, honest and well-regarded Lord Thaddeus Rowan in his place. Unwin Peake removed himself to his seat at Starpike to brood upon the wrongs he felt he had suffered, though his aunt, the Lady Clarice, his uncle Gedmund Peake, the Great Axe, Gareth Long, Victor Risley, Lucas Laygood, George Graceford, Septon Bernard, and his many other appointments did not follow him, but continued to serve in their respective offices, as did his bastard brother Sir Mervyn Flowers and his nephew Sir Amory Peake, for sworn brothers of the King's Guard serve for life. Lord Unwin even bequeathed Tessario and his fingers to his successor, the king had his guards, he declared, and so must the hand. The Lycene Spring and the End of Regency Peace reigned over King's Landing for the remainder of that year, marred only by the death of Manfred Mouton, Lord of Maidenpool, and the last of King Aegon's original regents. His lordship had been failing for some time never truly having regained his strength after the winter fever, so his passing excited little comment. To take his place upon the council, Lord Rowan turned to Sir Corwin Corbray, Lady Rayner's husband. Her sister Lady Baylor, meanwhile, returned to Driftmark with Lord Allen and their daughter. Not long after, Prince Viserys thrilled the court by announcing that the Lady Lara was with child. All of King's Landing rejoiced. Beyond the city, however, 134 AC would not be a year to remember fondly. North of the Neck, winter still held the land in its icy fist. At Barreton, Lord Dustin closed his gates as hundreds of starving villagers gathered beneath his walls. White Harbour fared better, for its port allowed food to be brought in from the south, but prices rose so high that good men began to sell themselves into bondage to slave traders from across the sea, so their wives and children might eat, whilst worse men sold their wives and children. Even in the winter town, beneath the very walls of Winterfell, 
the Norsemen fell to eating dogs and horses. Cold and hunger carried off a third of the Night's Watch, and when thousands of wildlings walked across the frozen sea east of the wall, hundreds more of the Black Brothers perished in battle. In the Iron Islands, a savage struggle for power followed upon the death of the Red Kraken. His three sisters and the men they had married seized Torren Greyjoy, the boy upon the sea stone chair, and put his mother to death, whilst his cousins joined with the lords of Harlor and Blacktide to raise up Torren's half-brother Roderick, and the men of Great Wick rallied to a pretender called Sam Salt, who claimed to be descended of the Black Line. Their bloody three-way fight had been raging for half a year, when Sir Leo Costain descended upon them with his fleet, landing thousands of Lannister swords and spears on Pike, Greatwick, and Harlaw. Lord Oakenfist had refused to be a part of House Lannister's vengeance upon the Iron Men, but the old sea lion proved more amenable to Lady Joanna's entreaties, swayed mayhaps by her promise to marry him if he delivered the Iron Islands to her son's rule. That proved beyond Sir Leo's power to achieve, however. Costain died amidst the stony hills of Great Wick, cut down by the hand of Arthur Goodbrother, and three-quarters of his ships were seized or sunk in those cold, grey seas. Though Lady Joanna's wish to put every Iron Man to the sword was frustrated, no man could doubt that the Lannisters had paid their debt by the time the fight was done. Hundreds of longships and fishing boats were burned, with as many homes and villages. The wives and children of the Ironborn, who had wreaked such havoc on the Westerlands, were put to the sword wherever they were found. Amongst the slain were nine of the Red Kraken's cousins, two of his three sisters and their husbands, Lord Drum of Old Wick and Lord Goodbrother of Great Wick, as well as the Lords Volmark and Harlor of Harlor, Botley of Lord Sport and Stonehouse of Old Wick. Thousands more would die of starvation before the year was done, for the Lannisters also carried off many tons of stored grain and salt fish, and despoiled that which they could not carry. Though Torren Greyjoy remained upon the seastone chair, when his defenders beat off the Lannister assault upon the walls of Pike, his half-brother Roderick was taken and brought back to Casterly Rock, where Lady Joanna had him gelded, and made him her son's fool. Across the width of Westeros, another struggle for succession broke out late in the year 134, when Lady Jane Arran, the Maiden of the Vale, died at Gulltown of a cold that had settled in her chest. Forty years of age, she perished in the Mother House of Maris on its stony island in the harbour of Gulltown, wrapped in the arms of Jessamine Redfort, her dear companion. On her deathbed, her ladyship dictated a last testament naming her cousin Sir Joffrey Arran as her heir. Sir Joffrey had served her loyally for the past ten years as Knight of the Bloody Gate, defending the Vale against the savage wildlings of the hills. Sir Joffrey was only a fourth cousin by degree, however. Far closer by blood was Lady Jane's first cousin, Sir Arnold Arran, who had twice attempted to depose her. Imprisoned after his second failed rebellion, Sir Arnold was now quite mad after long years in the Eyrie's sky cells and the dungeons under the gates of the moon. But his son, Sir Eldrick Arran, was sane, shrewd, and ambitious, and came forward now to press his father's claim. Many lords of the Vale rallied to his banners, insisting that long-established laws of inheritance 
could not be put aside by the whim of a dying woman. A third claimant emerged in the person of one Isambard Aaron, patriarch of the Galtown Aarons, a still more distant branch of that great house. Having split off from their noble kin during the reign of King Jeheris, the Galtown Aarons had gone into trade and grown rich. Men japed that the falcon on Isambard's arms was made of gold, and he soon became known as the Gilded Falcon. He used that wealth now, bribing lesser lords to support his claim and bringing swords across the narrow sea. Lord Rowan did what he could to alleviate these woes, commanding the Lannisters to withdraw from the Iron Islands, shipping food to the north, and summoning the Aran claimants to King's Landing to present their cases to the regents. But his efforts were largely ineffectual. The Lannisters and the Arons alike ignored his decrees, and far too little food arrived at White Harbor to alleviate the famine. Though well-liked, neither Thaddeus Rowan nor the boy he served were feared. By year's end, many at court had begun to whisper that it was not the regents who ruled the realm, but rather the money-changers of lease. Though the court and city still doted on the king's brother, that clever, gallant boy Viserys, the same could not be said for his Lycine wife, Lara Rogari had taken up residence in the Red Keep with her husband, yet in her heart she remained a lady of lease. Though fluent in High Valyrian and the dialects of Mir, Tyrosh, and Old Volantis, in addition to her own Lycine tongue, Lady Lara made no effort to learn the common tongue, preferring to rely upon translators to make her wishes known. Her ladies were all Lycini, as were her servants. The gowns she wore all came from Lys, even her small clothes. Her father's ships delivered the latest Lysine fashions to her thrice a year. She even had her own protectors. Lysine swords guarded her night and day under the command of her brother Moredo and a towering mute from the fighting pits of Myrine called Sandok the Shadow. All this the court and kingdom might have come to accept in time had Lady Lara not also insisted upon keeping her own gods. She would have no part in the worship of the Seven, nor the old gods of the Northmen. Her worship was reserved for certain of the manifold gods of Lys, the six-breasted cat goddess Pantera, Indros of the Twilight who was male by day and female by night, the pale child Bacalon of the Sword, faceless Sargale, the giver of pain. Her ladies, her servants, and her guards would join Lady Lara at certain times in performing obeisances to these queer ancient deities. Cats were seen coming and going from her chambers so often that men began to say they were her spies, purring at her in soft voices of all the doings of the Red Keep. It was even said that Lara herself could transform into a cat to prowl the gutters and rooftops of the city. Darker rumors soon arose. The acolytes of Indros could supposedly transform themselves from male to female and female to male through the act of love, and whispers went about that her ladyship oft availed herself of this ability at twilight orgies, so she might visit the brothels on the street of silk as a man. And every time a child went missing, the ignorant would look at one another and talk of Sargale's insatiable thirst for blood. Even less loved than Lara of Lys were the three brothers who had come with her to King's Landing. 
Moredo commanded his sister's guards, whilst Lotto set about establishing a branch of the Rugari Bank atop Vesenia's hill. Rogerio, the youngest, opened an opulent Lycine pillow house called the Mermaid, beside the river gate, and filled it with parrots from the Summer Islands, monkeys from Sothorios, and a hundred exotic girls, and boys, from every corner of the earth. Though their favours cost ten times as much as any other brothel dared to charge, Rogerio never lacked for customers. Great lords and common tradesmen alike spoke of the beauties and wonders to be found behind the mermaid's carved and painted doors, including, some said, an actual mermaid. Almost all that we know of the myriad marvels of the mermaid comes to us from Mushroom, who alone amongst our chroniclers is willing to confess to visiting the brothel himself on many occasions, and partaking of its many pleasures in sumptuously appointed rooms. Across the sea, the daughter's war finally reached its end. Rakalio Rundun fled south to the Basilisk Isles with his remaining supporters. Lys, Tyrosh, and Mir divided the disputed lands, and the Dornish took dominion over most of the stepstones. The Mirish suffered the greatest losses in these new arrangements, whilst the Archon of Tyrosh and the Princess of Dawn gained the most. In Lys, ancient houses fell, and many a high-born magister was cast down and ruined, whilst others rose up to seize the reins of power. Chief amongst these was Lysandro Rogari and his brother Drazenko, architect of the Dornish Alliance. Drazenko's ties to Sunspear and Lysandro's to the Iron Throne made the Rogaris the princes of Lys in all but name. By the end of 134 AC, some feared they might soon rule Westeros as well. Their pride and pomp and power became the talk of King's Landing. Men began to whisper of their wiles. Lotho bought men with gold. Rogerio seduced them with perfumed flesh. Moredo frightened them into submission with steel. Yet the brothers were no more than puppets in the hands of Lady Lara. It was her and her queer Lycene gods who held their strings. The king, the little queen, the young prince. They were only children, blind to what was happening about them, whilst the king's guard and the gold cloaks and even the king's hand had been bought and sold. Or so the stories went. Like all such tales, they had some truth to them, well mixed with fear and falsehood. That the Lysini were proud, grasping, and ambitious cannot be doubted. That Lotho used his bank and Rogerio his brothel to win friends to their cause goes without saying. Yet in the end, they differed but little from many of the other lords and ladies of Aegon III's court, all of them pursuing power and wealth in their own ways. Though more successful than their rivals, for a time at least, the Lysini were only one of several factions competing for influence. Had Lady Lara and her brothers been Westerosi, they might have been admired and celebrated, but their foreign birth, foreign ways, and foreign gods made them objects of mistrust and suspicion instead. Monken refers to this period as the Rogari Ascendancy, but that term was only ever used at Old Town amongst the maesters and archmaesters of the citadel. The people who lived through it called it the Lycene Spring for spring was indeed a part of it. Early in 135 AC, the conclave sent forth its white ravens from Old Town 
to herald the end of one of the longest and cruelest winters that the Seven Kingdoms had ever known. Spring is ever a season of hope, rebirth and renewal, and the spring of 135 AC was no different. The war in the Iron Islands came to an end, and Lord Cregan Stark of Winterfell borrowed a huge sum from the Iron Bank of Bravos to buy food and seed for his starving small folk. Only in the Vale did fighting continue. Furious at the refusal of the Arran claimants to come to King's Landing and submit their dispute to the judgment of the regents, Lord Thaddeus Rowan sent a thousand men to Galtown under the command of his fellow regent, Sir Corwin Corbray, to restore the King's peace and settle the matter of succession. Meanwhile, King's Landing experienced a period of prosperity such as it had not seen in many years, in no small part thanks to House Rogari of Lease. The Rogari Bank, was paying rich returns on all the monies deposited with them, leading more and more lords to entrust the Lysini with their gold. Trade flourished as well, as ships from Tyrosh, Mir, Pentos, Bravos, and especially Lys crowded the docks along the Blackwater, offloading silks and spices, mirish lace, jade from Carth, ivory from Sothorius, and many other strange and wondrous things from the ends of the earth, including luxuries seldom seen in the Seven Kingdoms before. Other port towns shared in the bounty. Duskendale, Maidenpool, Gulltown, and White Harbour saw their trade expand as well, as did Old Town to the south and even Lannisport upon the Sunset Sea. On Driftmark, the town of Hull experienced a rebirth. Scores of new ships were built and launched, and Lord Oakenfist's mother greatly expanded her own trading fleets, and began work on a palatial manse overlooking the harbour that Mushroom dubbed the Mouse House. Across the narrow sea, Lys itself was prospering under the velvet tyranny of Lysandro Rogari, who had taken on himself the style of First Magister for Life. And when his brother Drazenko married Princess Aleandra Martel of Dawn, and was named by her Prince Consort and Lord of the Stepstones, the ascendancy of House Rogari reached its apex. Men began to speak of Lysandro the Magnificent. During the first quarter of 135 AC, two momentous events were the occasion of great joy throughout the seven kingdoms of Westeros. On the third day of the third moon of that year, the people of King's Landing woke to a sight that had not been seen since the dark days of the dance, a dragon in the skies above the city. Lady Rayner, at the age of nineteen, was flying her dragon mourning for the first time. That first day, she circled once around the city before returning to the dragon pit. But every day thereafter, she grew bolder and flew farther. Only once did Rayner land mourning inside the Red Keep, however, for not even the best efforts of Prince Viserys could persuade his brother the king to come see his sister fly though Queen Daenerys was so delighted with mourning that she was heard to say that she wanted a dragon of her own. Shortly thereafter, mourning carried Lady Rayna across Blackwater Bay to Dragonstone, where, as she said, dragons and those who ride them are more welcome. Less than a fortnight later, Lara of Lys gave birth to a son, Prince Viserys's firstborn child. The mother was twenty years of age, the father only thirteen. Viserys named the child Aegon after his brother, the king, and placed a dragon's egg inside his cradle, as had become the custom with all true-born children of House Targaryen. 
Aegon was anointed with the seven oils by Septon Bernard in the royal sept, and the bells of the city rang in celebration of his birth. Gifts were sent from every corner of the realm, though none so lavish as those bestowed upon the babe by his Lysini uncles. In Lyse, Lysandro the Magnificent declared a day of feasting in honor of his grandson. Yet even in the midst of joy, whispers of discontent began to be heard. This new son of House Targaryen had been anointed into the faith, but soon enough the city heard that his mother meant to have him blessed by her own gods as well, and rumors of obscene ceremonies in the mermaid and blood sacrifice in Magor's holdfast began to be heard on the streets of King's Landing. The trouble might have ended there with talk, but soon thereafter a series of disasters befell the realm and royal family, each following hard upon the heels of the other, until even men who mocked the gods, like Mushroom, began to question whether the Seven had turned against House Targaryen and the Seven Kingdoms in their wrath. The first omen of the dark times to come was seen on Driftmark, when the dragon's egg presented to Lena Valerian upon her birth quickened and hatched. Her parents' pride and pleasure quickly turned to ash, however. The dragon that wriggled from the egg was a monstrosity, a wingless worm, maggot-white and blind. Within moments of hatching, the creature turned upon the babe in her cradle and tore a bloody chunk from her arm. As Lena shrieked, Lord Oakenfist ripped the dragon off her, flung it to the floor, and hacked it into pieces. The news of this monstrous dragon birth and its bloody aftermath were greatly troubling to King Aegon, and soon led to angry words between his grace and his brother. Prince Viserys still had his own dragon's egg. Though it had never quickened, the prince had kept it with him throughout his years of exile and captivity, for it held great meaning for him. When Aegon commanded that no dragon's eggs were to be allowed in his castle, Viserys grew most wroth. Yet the king's will prevailed as it must. The egg was sent to Dragonstone, and Prince Viserys refused to speak to King Aegon for a moon's turn. His grace was much dismayed by the quarrel with his brother, Mushroom tells us, but what happened next left him bereft and devastated. King Aegon was enjoying a quiet supper in his solar with his little queen, Denera, and his friend, Gaemon Palehair, and the dwarf was entertaining them with a silly song about a bear that drank too much, when the bastard boy began to complain of a cramping in his gut. Run, fetch Grand Maester Munken, the king commanded Mushroom. By the time the fool returned with the Grand Maester, Gaemon had collapsed, and Queen Denera was moaning, My belly hurts too. Gaemon had long served as King Aegon's food taster as well as his cup-bearer, and Munken soon declared that both he and the little queen were the victims of poisoning. The Grand Maester gave Denera a powerful purgative, which most like saved her life. She retched uncontrollably throughout the night, wailing and writhing in pain, and was too drained and weak to leave her bed the next day, but she was cleansed. Munken came too late for Gaemon Palehair, however, the boy died within the hour. Born a bastard in a brothel, King Cunny had reigned briefly over his kingdom on a hill during the Moon of Madness, seen his mother put to death, and served Aegon III as cupbearer, whipping boy, and friend. He was thought to be but nine years old at his death. Afterward, Grand Maester Munken fed what remained of the supper to a cage of rats, 
and determined that the poison had been baked into the crust of the apple tarts. Fortunately, the king had never been especially fond of sweets, nor of any other food, if truth be told. The knights of the king's guard at once descended to the Red Keep's kitchens and took a dozen cooks, bakers, scullions, and serving girls into custody, delivering them to George Graceford, the Lord Confessor. Under torture, seven confessed to attempting to poison the king. But each account differed from the next. There was no agreement on where they got the poison, and none of the captives correctly named the dish that had been poisoned, so Lord Rowan reluctantly dismissed their confessions as not fit to wipe my ass with. The hand was in a black state even before the poisoning, for he had only recently suffered his own personal tragedy when his young wife, the Lady Floris, died in childbirth. Though the king had spent less time with his cup-bearer after his brother's return to Westeros, Gaiman Palehair's death nonetheless left Aegon inconsolable. One small good came from it, for it helped to heal the rift between the king and his brother Viserys, who broke his stubborn silence to comfort his grace in his grief, and sat with him by the queen's bedside. That proved little enough, however. Thereafter it was Aegon who was silent, for his old gloom had settled over him once again, and he seemed to lose all interest in his court and kingdom. The next blow fell far from King's Landing in the Vale of Arran, when Sir Corwin Corbray ruled that Lady Jane's will must prevail, and declared Sir Geoffrey Arran the rightful Lord of the Eyrie. When the other claimants proved intransigent and refused to accept his ruling, Sir Corwin imprisoned the gilded falcon and his sons, and executed Eldrick Arran. Yet somehow Sir Eldrick's mad father, Sir Arnold, eluded him and fled to Runestone, where he had served as a squire in his boyhood. Gunther Royce, known in the Vale as the Bronze Giant, was an old man, as stubborn as he was fearless. When Sir Corwin arrived to winkle Sir Arnold out of his sanctuary, Lord Gunther donned his ancient bronze armour and rode out to confront him. Words grew heated, turned to curses, then to threats. When Cor